Julia May believes that visibility to self and others is not about vanity, but about building influence and impact. An ex-journalist who spent five years as a foreign correspondent for the Sydney Morning Herald before holding senior roles at Reuters and the Times of London, Julia has now found her sweet spot and nexus for real impact as the founder of Visibility Co, a leadership consultancy. As a parent to two young daughters now, her vision is that when they are grown, the world will have been brought back from the brink. She tells them regularly, it's okay, whoever you are is good. And yet the women and global leaders she works with so often grapple with persisting imposter syndrome, struggle to identify their own values, and are frustrated by not knowing how to create real and lasting impact in the areas they care passionately about. Julia thinks we all have the ability to lead ourselves and lift others up, no matter where we're at, and that once we know and own our story, we can elevate others to then in turn elevate others and pay it forward. Here's our conversation with Julia. As the co-founder of Visibility Co, you describe your purpose as to elevate others. What does elevation look like and how can each of us elevate ourselves and also each other in order to maximise impact and influence, especially if we're not a CEO or a leader or an activist? That's an awesome question and I love that you started there. Elevate others to elevate others is the purpose of Visibility Co, as you mentioned, which is the business that I founded with my best friend, Sarah Anderson. And I think when we started the business, we had a really strong felt sense of what we were trying to do, but didn't quite have the words to articulate it. And so we sat down together and over pots of tea and and asked ourselves, took ourselves through the process that we take people that we work with through. And interestingly, we went through this process where we ask each other continuously why, why, why on the back of an important question. So for us it was why do you want to lead in the world? And we both questioned each other and just kept on interrogating the answer. And for both of us the word elevate was the word that we both most commonly used. And once we sat and looked at what the word elevate actually meant, we realised it It's about lifting up from wherever you are. It doesn't matter actually where you are, whether you're at a great height or whether you're on the floor. We felt initially that it was about us elevating others and then we realised, no, it's about this ripple effect of if you can elevate yourself, you can then help to elevate others who can then share that more widely in that ripple effect. And that's where we landed on elevate others to elevate others. But actually importantly, which I think in answer to your question, we realised after a couple of years of working in the business and absolutely smashing ourselves as people do when they start businesses often, that we actually had to start with elevate ourselves to elevate others to elevate others. Uh, and I think that's a really important part of it in the sense that if you are not mindful of your own well-being and clear on what you stand for and clearly articulating your your values and and having a clear vision how can you possibly then go out and elevate others mm. so in answer to long winding question uh, answer to your question i guess it's the idea that what we really want to see is people who are clear on what they stand for and leading wherever they are so leadership not as a job title but as a state of mind. So if you're clear on what you want to do, you can then step out and elevate others. And the idea is that by doing that, 
then you inspire others to elevate others and onward it goes until you have something positive happening mm. in the world. Did you too, did you and Sarah self-define as leaders when you concepted the business? Where were you at together in your own journeys at that time? People kind of duck away from the idea of leadership and we, we work a lot with women and this whole idea of self-perception as a leader, we see so often, well, I'm not a leader because I don't do X, Y, Z, I don't have a title, I don't have lots of money. But we did come at it from this idea that you can lead actually from wherever you are in the world. And in fact, the world really needs you to lead from wherever you are. So whether that's leading yourself, having leadership of yourself or leading in your family or leading in your community or wherever you are. So, yeah, we did come at it from that idea that we have an opportunity to do something different together. It was one of those, I guess, those moments, those coalescence when you realise you kind of go, gosh, my career and my life's gone in such a funny zigzagging direction. Where is it actually going to land? And I'd spent 15 years as a journalist, five of them in London overseas as a correspondent and and had retrained in the leadership space, doing leadership coaching, working mostly with women. And Sarah had spent most of her career working in corporate communications in government and, and big corporates and nonprofit. And both of us, I think, where we landed was this moment in – I think it was 2014, where we both were really clear on our values and understood what values were and, and how they we wanted them to translate out into the world. How would you describe what values are and why do they play such an important role in leadership or in the leadership journey? And and I'm going to add a part B to that question. Yeah. That was part A. Yep. Part B would be how do we find our own values because we all talk about mm. values all the time, but when I work with people one-on-one or in organisations, they'll often say, I-, I don't know where to start. Yeah. yeah. Well, lucky you've got lots of frameworks, I think, for that, don't you? But yeah. how would you describe, like, what a value is? Well, the way we talk about it is those deep internal drivers that you have a felt sense of many, many times every single day because they drive your decision-making, they influence the dynamics of the relationships that you choose but also the relationships around you. They make you angry when you see them being breached, they make you feel really happy when you're in alignment with them. What we find is that through the, people talk about, again, another word like leadership, that values gets bandied about and cheapened. Actually, Mm. we talk about, we hear politicians talking about Australian values. I'm like, what actually do you mean by Mm. that? And in fact, people have different values. So when you talk about one set of values for that define and govern everybody, it's actually not not a thing as far as I'm concerned. So those deeper drivers of decision-making really big influences on relationships. And in the context of leadership, as far as I'm concerned, if you're not, if you don't know what your values are, how can you be truly self-aware, know yourself really well, and therefore know what influence you want to actually have, where you want to lead. So it's sort of foundational layers of what motivates you, who you are, how you connect with yourself or the world. That's how we see it, yeah. Mm. And I think with the articulation of them comes this freedom in the sense that suddenly you understand yourself and you understand what drives you but also you understand why you get angry about Mm. certain things, why you have conflict Mm -hmm. with particular people. And so we go through a process where we take people through it and literally sit them down with 150 words and ask them what's really important. And what would you, we come at it a few different ways. What would you die for? What would you actually die for? What's really um, important to you? What makes you angry? And do a forced ranking process. And literally 
it can be really hard for people in having to to really articulate what's most important, but it's in the living of it that you see, oh, wow, okay, this is really obvious. Now I see it, I can't unsee it. Mm -hmm. Especially, as you say, when they're breached, often that's when we know what matters most to us. And it's really important, I think, that this menu idea that you Mm. get your um, clients to, to work through is sometimes we don't know what values are until we see them in front of us. Or do we call it by its name, if you like? Or even yeah. to identify, yes, yes, we need to call it. But mm. sometimes we can't call it until we've actually seen seen it written down and then we can, uh, I've seen a lot of clients go, oh, yeah, I know for sure that that, that value is non-negotiable. Mm. But until it's been presented on a menu, they don't know what to order. 100%. Or a framework 100%. in which to understand it maybe and say, oh, I yeah. can see how that plays out in my life or work or conflict areas or, you know. So what's what's the actual you know, there's that prioritisation that you talk about where mm. you have to rank it. But you've got someone coming in who, who's never even thought about values implicit in their own self as a leader or otherwise. Where do you start? With them, well, uh, understanding from their point of view what a value actually is, because it's very laden with meaning, and often people assume that, well, it's what my parents taught me, and often it is. Often it's not as well. Peers are actually the biggest influence of values as, as you're going through your teen years, but also obviously life experiences and and also just the way that you make up something you're made up. First of all, it's really understanding well, what are we talking about with values. But it's just once they articulate it and they see it in front of them and say see the words it starts to make sense in terms of, in fact, we were working with someone last week, this amazing guy who's built an incredible business. He's got a brain like no other, but he's feeling really in pain, like in his everyday work and life. He's in this particular kind of existential pain that he didn't have a word for. And he did his values and he's like, oh, now I get it. I totally get it. I'm not I'm not actually living what's important to me. And so from my personal perspective, my top value is justice. And so as soon as I worked that out, I was like, oh, God, I get it now. I get why social impact in my journalism work was really important to me and why I'm such a strong feminist. I understand that. I understand why I get mad about big, big, big global justice issues, but also on a day-to-day level. The basic, most basic, if my husband doesn't do the dishes and I know it's his turn, it's like, oh, it jars and poor him because he's got me with justice as a top, mm. top value. But your second value is compassion, isn't yeah. it? So yeah. are you then quite compassionate when you um, yeah. have a flare of Not with your husband over the dishes, though. <laughs> well, they're uneasy bedfellows. This, this, this is the hard thing about values sometimes is that some of them don't go so well. So justice and compassion are a bit like Jekyll and Hyde at times because um, compassion comes first. So in the case of doing the dishes. It's discretionary value. It is. It's It's kind of like, oh, well, you know, he's had a really long day at work and fair enough, like I should, you know, I'll just do it. And then I start sort of ruminating. I'm like, well, actually I've done it and he just left the pans in the, in the sink yesterday and actually I've also unstacked the dishwasher and cleaned the toilet. And justice always wins out, unfortunately. Yeah, so. just big shout out there to Julia's husband, <laughs> darling um, Fred. <laughs> darling Fred. He does do the dishes airing, most of the time. Airing the laundry. Yeah. So you are really passionate about gender equality, mm. diversity and inclusion. We hear those words a lot yeah. and we've been hearing a lot about gender this year, particularly what's been playing out in our federal parliament. Mm. Um, it's been a really challenging time for all of us, whether you're a feminist or not, just grappling with some of the really complex equality issues in corporate, in schools, etc. We have a lot of anger, despair, um, a lot of vitriol. Where are you at with all of it? I swing between feeling really angry and upset. I've got two little girls, one's eight and one's five. And for me, 
I want to get to a point when I'm an old lady and they're my age and we can actually have a conversation about what it used to be like. I just want things to change really quickly. So I'm scared. I'm scared about lots of things. I'm scared about the state of the planet. Uh, I'm scared about what confronts them and, and the next generation of girls. And then at other times I get I'm really hopeful and optimistic because I see amazing women doing amazing things. I work with amazing women doing amazing things. I see courage on a day-to-day basis from the women that I just interact with and I see the change happening. And then on the other hand, you think you're seeing progress and then you see the stuff that's happened been playing out in recent times and not just that it plays out, and that it's actually happening because we know it happens. I mean, I worked in media, I've covered government, I've covered politics, I've covered business. <laughs> like it happens in every space. We know that. It's the response. And, you know, going back to that values idea, seeing a lack of leadership from the most senior leaders in our country and around the world who effectively say, it's not my problem. It's not my problem. You know, I, I'm not a policeman. I'm not a, you know, I'm not in charge of this. Like, well, if you're not in charge, who is? Mm. And that's mm. where I feel like in terms of one of the drivers of, our, of what we do is that by having more women in leadership and more people who are not white, you know, the pale, male, stale model of mm-hmm. leadership, we will come closer to have, seeing a different response and seeing some of the systemic changes that we actually really need. So... In terms of the last, even the last little while, yeah, I'm angry, but I'm also really focused on doing what I can do about it, which is ultimately all we can do. And from where I see it, the more people going back to that elevate others perspective, it probably just makes me want to work harder um, Mm. in actual fact and work with more people and get behind more amazing people who can actually affect the change. It just makes me more impatient and gives me a greater sense of urgency. We need more more work and, you know, you and I both roll around in this and with Girl World we work with 30,000 students, you know, all over Australia. I'm getting disillusioned with women elevating girls because, you know, there's all the things we hear around if you want to change a generation, you know, you start with the women because they'll teach their, their daughters. But if the daughters grow up into a system yeah, that is structured such that they can't be elevated, which is what we're seeing at the moment, yep. not enough visibility, yep. you know, not enough opportunity, then we're actually not going to change that system. It's, it's truly wicked and it has a glass ceiling. Totally. You know? And so it has to be collaborative and collective, that, yep. that push. You know, everybody's got to lean back in and pull up the mm. daughters. Totally. And the sons. And this is this yeah. is one of the yeah, things, and the sons. That's what I was, you know, yeah. this is what we grapple with is that we do a lot of work with women and we, we've um, founded a global initiative for women in STEM called Homeward Bound. You know, we take 100 women through a program every year to try and support them into leadership as it, you know, as it informs the planet. It's really important to what we do. But at the same time, if you don't work with the men to understand the issues and bring them along and for them to feel empowered to step forward and actually understand the urgency and the need for them to step forward. All you're doing is equipping the women with amazing skills and tools, but they have to go back into the systems in which. Exactly. It, that, yeah. And there's a lot of advocacy and not yeah. enough action. Absolutely. So we look at International Women's Day. Right. For one day, but that's like a heart attack on a calendar. Yeah. And then we all go away and default. Well, it's the same for mental health. I think, you know, we know and Beyond Blue has done so much research around this that acknowledging that there are mental health issues, acknowledging that there's gender inequality, everybody knows that now. We've done all that work. We've done that. We've done great work in that space. But how do we translate that to action and real, tangible, measurable change? 
I don't, I don't have the answers, but I'm interested in your thoughts, Julia, around the action piece. Yeah, the action, I mean. And who's doing it well? What, what are some examples that we've got about people that have translated good intentions to outcomes? Into, into outcomes. Well, I think from the, the first point of view that in order to, the way that we look at the work that we do, which is about ultimately wanting to shift systems, not that obviously we would pretend that in one business and, and the work we do, we can shift entire systems, but the idea that in order to affect systemic change, you need to work within the system, outside the system and against the system. Mm-hmm. You need to be equipping leaders within mainstream. You need banks. You need big business on board. You need government on board. You also need the activists. You need the nonprofits. You need everyone in the system working in concert at different levels and pulling different levers. That's the approach we take. So we, literally we will we would work at just as happily with the CEO of a, a, an insurance company or a superannuation company as we would with a rebellious, you know, renegade activist. And what we do, we work with social movements as well as working with big organisations because that's where we see the change. And I think ultimately in terms of who's doing it well, I think there are a lot of amazing leaders and amazing people doing the right thing and doing extraordinary, making extraordinary change, but often they fly under the radar um, and they're not understood. And so therefore the norms of what we're used to and what we understand and what we kind of um, define as leadership, we get stuck into a mode of thinking, but actually there's some incredible people creating and contributing to shifts, which is why at the heart of what we do is about visibility and about Mm. saying, You can be the most extraordinary person and have all the skills in the world, but if you can't step out and engage people and tell the story and show what you're doing, then the potential for you to influence and actually have real impact in in terms of creating the kind of action and ripple effects is minimal. And so that's why it's about bringing together those, the understanding of yourself with the ability to, to show what you're doing and to share that with other people. So there are so many people doing it from grassroots. We were just talking before about local ocean swimming groups with people who rally and who, who step up and do that and inspire other people. That's in my local area, right through to some of the big global change makers that we're seeing, the Greta Thunbergs of the world. But if we can get more of those people actually being seen, they're out there. It's actually that they just don't get the airtime. That, so that how some do of the we measure do. visibility? Mm. How would we know if we're being visible? It's a kind of how long is a piece of string question because the way we think about it, well, actually I'll ask you, what do you think about when I say visibility? What comes to reach? mind? Reach? I think less reach and more standing up and into the spotlight. Yeah. What do you think? It's more about going wide. So it's both. I think we've both answered. I reckon yeah. it's it's both of those. It's breadth and depth. Yeah. yeah. Standing in the spotlight and being willing to be seen. Yeah. So here I am. I have stepped up. I am standing up to say these things or represent these things. But what happens to women when they do that? That's right. We get fruits thrown at us. Or if you're doing that in your own backyard, which is important, mm-hmm. but then you don't have the reach, then it doesn't matter what you're saying and yeah. how powerful and how meaningful. Because no one's hearing it. Or, or you're right. in an echo chamber. You're just yes. saying it with people who always yes. come to your party. Which happens a lot, I think. It yeah. does. Yeah. And that, yeah. In terms of listening to, to disparate views, 
there are different versions of visibility. So it depends on what you're trying to do in the world. And that's how we come at it is that I think the idea of visibility is quite a masculine concept in the sense that it's usually people say it's about, I got to have a voice. I got to be seen. I got to be heard. I got to be out there. I got to be, you know, um, I got to have a reputation and be known for this and known for that. But ultimately the way we approach it is it starts with, well, what matters to you? What's your purpose? What do you Mm -hmm. actually, what do you stand for? Mm -hmm. And so therefore the ways in which you want you, visibility matters to you, it starts with actually visibility to self. Mm-hmm. So before you become visible to others, it starts with visibility to self and asking those hard questions and saying, what do I stand for? And once you're clear on that and only once you're clear on that, then you say, okay, so where, in what spaces do I need to be visible mm. in, in that sort of traditional sense? And on a psychological level, a lot of us haven't got clarity around that or there's some no. dis-ease with who we are or who we think we should be or who we think our parents wanted us to be or, you know, there's hurdles in that. It's not It's not simple. S- tell us a little bit about how justice, you know, let us deep dive into, into you personally. Yeah. Not just the work that you do. Justice, but, where it comes from. Yeah. Mm. Why does that matter and why well, would you die for justice? It's funny. I mean, I've done. I've spent a lot of time thinking about it, and and it, sometimes I think it comes from. I mean, looking at my family background, my mum migrated out to Australia from the UK just after she met my dad in the sixties, and grew up in a post-war environment. And so I listened to her stories of growing up in a post-war environment. She was in London after the Blitz. And that kind of war, that experience of being a war child, colouring her whole sort of philosophy around her life and the way that she brought us up. And I think over time she was a quiet activist and she passed away two years ago. And so I've done a lot of thinking about her, um, obviously, and who she, who she was in the time since she was quiet in her way that she, she went about. So she, you know, she marched in the sixties against, you know, the nuclear threat, I guess her sense of the bigger picture, having moved countries and grown up in that era really coloured. It just was always part of how I thought about things. And then my dad also, I definitely see he's much more um, overt. He's just, he can't handle injustice. In fact, I see him all the time, can't handle the underdog. He wants to fight for the underdog always. But at the personal level, I have two older brothers who are four years older than me and I had to fight my corner as a kid at times. I was a little one and they were, they're twins and I had to fight my corner. So I think I'd probably developed a pretty strong sense of needing to be a strong girl. They're beautiful. Don't get me wrong. They're beautiful, beautiful boys and always were, but I had to fight my corner. And um, so I've just always had, I think it's infused by my intergenerational Mm, kind of heritage, but also just the way that I was brought up. Um, We're pretty vocal family. And, but yeah, I, I observe even my dad now, he's nearly 77 and he, like I watch it with the way that he's around my children and making sure that it's fair, things are really fair, but also can't handle it when there's an injustice in the system. He's always the first to write a letter or, you know, ring the manager, put me through to the manager. I think mm. that's where it comes from. And also education. And then I think also experiences of injustice. I've had my own trauma over time where that's deeply affected me. And I've come out of it going, well, I just don't want other people to experience some of that in their own spaces. So that played out and it took me a long time to understand that that really infused my career as a journalist. I was always seeking to uncover injustice and trying to always get women's voices into the media. That's where I ended up doing social affairs, feature writing um, at the age. And 
older people, I sort of became known as the older people correspondent because I was writing a lot about aged care and, mm. and abuse in homes and abuse in prisons. And I can see it now playing out in everything I do. And again, because I've got an awareness of it now, I, I know why that is. Mm. Again, it sounds I think like it's pretty multifaceted. Got, yeah, big layer mm. there of social yeah. justice, but the why. Yeah. You're very strong asking why, why going deeper, which yeah. is where we started this conversation. Yeah, that's uh, right. Which obviously led you into, into yeah. journalism. Um, and so now as a mum of two girls and bringing them up, sounds like we, as we all do inherit and, and imprint somewhat our parents' generational layers, how are you then conscious of how you're parenting your own daughters in terms oh, of uh, intention? So conscious. <laughs> to the point of turning myself inside out probably because I'm so aware of how I do and don't want to imprint them. But I guess for me um, what I've learned through my own, you know, challenges and and um, the ups and downs of life is that the sooner you know who you are, the easier life is. And so it took me, you know, probably 20 years of exploration to get to the point where I could comfortably say, I know who I am. I'm pretty, pretty clear on who I am. And so from the way that I parent my girls, it's really about, and that my husband, Brett and I both try and parent our girls. It's about saying, whoever you are is good. So whoever and whatever you want to be is good. It starts from there in the sense that I want you to know that, that that's what I think about you, but imbuing them with a sense of both pride in themselves and also self-responsibility. So that idea that your problems are not always somebody else's fault. So where do you, so starting with that idea of self-responsibility and say, what did you, so they come running in and Ola hit me. No, Ola never hits. Esther, Esther pushed me. (laughs) Ola, you know, Ola shouted at me. And I say, okay, cool. Well, what did you bring into it? Where does self-responsibility start here? So where do you take responsibility for your own actions? And then you look around and what other, what, see what others have done. Because I think if, if more people were in self-responsibility, we would live in a very different world. And so it starts there. And then it's also about them having a voice. So saying not being afraid to speak up, um, even if that is uncomfortable and scary at times. Um, Even just yesterday, my little one, um, she's just started prep. She was so incensed. She came home and one of the grade three girls had pushed her off the monkey bars. And and so I said, okay, let's sit down and have a role play. So we role played. I played the grade three girl. She played herself. And we role played how she could use language to and her body to be in self-responsibility and use her voice to assert what was right and what was wrong, but also to know when to ask for help. So I just want them from the very beginning to be cool with who they are and also unafraid to step forward when the time comes but also if it's not right to know when to step back as well mm. so it's but it's not it's an art not a science that's for sure I'm not always getting it right but it's really it is really important to me that they feel that they have agency in whatever space that they're in which is not always easy you know in the world of social media and what's coming I'm pretty scared about that but for them to be clear on what they stand for and what they don't stand for and have a voice. For me, that's where it starts. Because I see it at the other end where women have been told to be quiet and have been told to be a good girl um, their whole lives and they spend all this time unpacking that in order to really become who they, they want to be. So wherever possible, trying not to um, overlay my own expectations on what what I want them to be, which is not easy, of course. Mm. I'm curious whether you're talking to your daughters or to clients, 
when there's a block to the accountability piece mm. because we all say, oh, well, no, mm. I don't think, I, you know. Because you need self-awareness to have self-responsibility. Yes. Yeah. Mm. So how do you help bring that out, whether it's in a five-year-old or a 55-year-old? Good questions usually. Just good questions and allowing them to come at it in their own time. But I've had it done to me. So everything that we teach, we've done, we go through. So I don't ask anybody to go through anything that I wouldn't do myself. And actually after my mum died, I um, started working with a woman who is the most amazing, she has this incredible ability to call bullshit when she sees it, call stories. And I've done a lot of learning about the stories that we create in our own heads that we take as truth that becomes, that really obviously influences the words that you use and your behaviour in the outside world. And actually one of my favourite quotes is, the words we speak become the house we live in. Mm, it's like the stories we tell ourselves make us who we are. Exactly, and they do. And the, the power of it is that once you realise it's only a story. So, And I am a storyteller. I've spent a big portion of my life writing stories and I see the power, and you would see this, Brina, as a, as a psych going like, the stories that people tell and the ability to recraft a story. So encourage just supporting someone to set to, to go, actually, is this a truth or mm. is this a story? Mm. And if it's a story, could I recraft it and write another story mm-hmm. and look or, at it? Yeah, which story are you reading or listening to? Because don't we have the so many sort of subliminal narratives that we oh. all have that could be damaging or dark so or dysfunctional and, and don't realize that we've got the power to edit them or challenge them. Mm. Yeah. And that's that for me the the amazing thing when you see someone and, and, you know, whether like we will work with a really senior person in a big corporate who has exactly the same hang-ups as the most junior person in the room. Julia, you've shared so much with us in this conversation about the call to action, the invitation to self, Mm. the need to elevate ourselves and one another. And I wonder how our listeners and Mads and I can engage with the work that Visibility Co do as individuals, as organisations, as communities? Well, that's, I guess that's the power of it is that anyone can engage in it. And so in terms of the work we do and a very kind of nuts and bolts, we work with individuals, self-responsible wherever possible, self-aware wherever possible, but people who have um, a client of ours recently said uh, passion burning in their heart that needs to come out into the world. So that's primarily the kinds of people that we work with are those that know they have a vision and know they have potential but struggle to know exactly how to take it out in the world. So we work with individuals on that basis but also we do mastermind programs. So every year we run a a mastermind for women that's a really amazing space where we deliberately curate the group to be really diverse. So you'll have women from government, entrepreneurs, influencers who come together and it's very much about creating that supportive space for them to to do the work. So it's it's a mix of the visibility to self, then thinking strategically about, okay, once I'm clear on those core foundations, what role does visibility, communications, how I step out in the world, how does that help me activate? So literally that might be creating for if you're an influencer for someone who's on on national tv that's one of our clients for example she had a burning desire she knew she wanted to do more with her platform but didn't know exactly what to do with it so get clear on the foundations and then create a strategy okay what's my goal is it actually to become known for something is it to build my reputation 
is actually the best way to do that, to build relationships with key people. And then actually building a strategy of how do I go out and do that and building the mindset and the, the skills, literally skills around communication, which is kind of the easy bit from my background in journalism and Sarah's in communications. The communications and, and actual execution of visibility is easy. The hard bit is actually the, the deeper strategy work. Mm. We are also strategy nerds. So it's about saying like what actually you're trying to achieve and why first. So we run programs. We do like two-day masterclasses. We work with all the tools are as relevant for men and women and organisations as they are for individuals. It's the same principles, mm. programs within organisations, strategic advisory, that kind of thing. So it's across the board. And effectively, we don't discriminate. We are happy to work with somebody who is, as I said before, a, an activist, as we are with the most straight-laced banker if they have a passion burning in their heart and they want to get clear on what it is or they're clear on what it is and they want to know how to take it out because the third pillar I talked about the first two pillars is visibility to self visibility to others the third is visibility for collective impact Mm. and that's the idea that when you're clear on yourself you've built the platform you've got the skills you're creating you've built influence wherever you are that might be in the halls of government in a government department or within your own business to your team it's then okay or it might be in a public platform like this client who's on tv how do you then use that platform in service of something bigger than yourself how do you then take that out in the world Um, and once people get clear on the idea that they can actually have influence and they, you know, going back to that idea of agency and getting clear on what's most important to them and having a strategy for taking that out, it's amazing. It's a, it's an amazing thing. We talk about catching up with the vision. We use this phrase catching up with the vision where you set an intention for what you want to achieve and once you go about actually following it strategically, building the skills, having the mindset, having the support network, it's amazing how quickly you actually can catch up with the vision and be ready to start, you know, move into something bigger. So, yeah, that's it's, our days are really varied mm. in terms of running programs, coaching, doing retreats. We're doing an amazing program called We Africa for women, African women in conservation. Same tools. They have the same issues as, you know, a, a woman in a government department in Australia. We see the same challenges, obviously greater risks often um, from a visibility point of view because that's a reality for women, as you said before, Mads, is, you know, there are risks to standing up and stepping out that you have to be realistic about. But ultimately, if you're clear on what you want to achieve, then how you need to be visible becomes really obvious. You don't have to be all over the media and all over social media. It's what's most important to you, who do you need to be in front of, and then how do you go about engaging them? And I imagine you can do this work with clients around Australia, around the world. It doesn't need to be face-to-face. No, that was, I mean, the beautiful thing about COVID is it kind of normalised what we were doing anyway in the sense that, well, Homeward Bound as an example, I mean, we've had women... I think it's we're up to 450 women from 58 countries and that was all online. You know, it began five years ago. We're about to go into the sixth cohort and that was all online, um, 11 months of online programming. So we just kind of want to unlock a, a mini revolution of people who are like-hearted and purpose-driven and have the skills and the courage to step out and actually transform that norm 
actually transform the norm of, of leadership mm. so that when my kids are grown up, they don't equate leadership with um, the current paradigm. Um, well, we will definitely put something in our show notes so that people can connect with you and Sarah and the amazing work you do at Visibility Co. Thank and you. thank you for, well, elevating and inspiring us today, but also creating the programs you do to try and create more opportunities for more women and girls to step up and start to shape some of these systems uh, that we know need a bit of a redesign. Julia, we like to end asking all of our guests this question. Life can be very challenging and complicated at the best and the worst of times. Who do you think is doing human really well? I knew you were going to ask this Mm. and so I've been listening and thinking and I've actually got two people. One is my dad who is um, having gone through a massive trauma in terms of losing my mum two years ago really suddenly. When I talk about visibility to self, he epitomises it for me in terms of being a 77-year-old man who's not afraid to do the work. He's not afraid to take a good hard look at himself and he's actually reinventing and reimagining his own purpose and his own vision for his life at a stage of life where he never thought he would be. So he's rebounded from this, you know, huge loss in the most amazing way. So my dad, he's one and The other one is actually um, one of our collaborators, Tara Shine, her name is, and we've worked with her. Um, She's a partner of ours and and, um, teaches the visibility work in in Ireland. And she is, to me, the epitome of somebody. She's got an enormous platform. She works in climate change negotiation spaces. She does documentaries. She writes. She's got a huge public profile in Ireland and, and elsewhere, but she's incredibly grounded and humble and is just herself. So she, for me, epitomizes the kind of person who she's just laid back, kind, funny, not afraid to be a total dork and yet can wield incredible influence and can is actually contributing to major change. So it's kind of for me that they, I was thinking about both of them, um, and it's conveniently right across those three pillars, the, the visibility to self, mm. to others and collectively. And, yeah, both of them for me represent, I guess, the best of what I would want to be mm. and would want to bring out in the world. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Human Cogs. We know that being human is pretty messy for the best of us and we really hope these conversations challenge what you think you know about yourself and maybe some others in your orbit. And you know, Mads, as a psychologist, I know I'm having a good day at work when people say to me, Sabina, I've never thought about it that way before. That's what we hope your experience will be listening to Human Cogs. So if you want to find out more about other episodes or about this episode, jump on our website at humancogs.com.